Amen. This psalm, How Long, O Lord, I'm sure that's been the prayers of some of us about different things. We fear that the Lord has hidden his face from us. He asks, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? And he talks about his enemies. But one thing about these psalms, they always turn to hope in the Lord. He says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. That is always the hope of the believers that we trust in God's steadfast love. That is the love for us never changes. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this psalm that we just read. We thank you, Lord, for encouragement from your word. Well, there are perhaps many of us in here this morning and who are watching that ask this same question, Lord, how long? How long will this last? How long is this going to go on? How long do I have to deal with this? How long do I have to suffer? Lord, will you forget me forever? How long would you hide your face from me? Well, there are many times in our life that we have these feelings. That we think that you've forgotten us. We think that you don't hear us. We even doubt your love toward us, which is uh, sinful. But sometimes, Lord, we allow our emotions to, to go there. We ask how long will you hide your face from us? How long must we have sorrow in our heart? Lord, this is the heart of a sufferer in this world. This is the heart of the suffering Christian. Lord, we ask you to consider us and answer us. To lift up our eyes, lest we sleep the sleep of death. Lest our enemy may say, I have prevailed over him. Or lest our foes, the foes of Christ, the foes of the cross, may rejoice because we appear to be shaken. Lord, I like the way the psalmist says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. And our heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Lord, as we think in our souls, how long? Let us turn, Lord, to trusting in you, trusting in your steadfast love. Because, Lord, steadfast means it is unchanging. It is never changing. Your love towards your people never changes. It never wanes. It never fades. It is always the same. Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love for your people. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust in your steadfast love toward us. Lord, you don't love us any less than you love us right now. You don't love us any more than you love us right now. That is the steadfast love of our Father our Heavenly Father. Lord, let us trust in the fact that your steadfast love remains with us, that it will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for encouragement from the scriptures this morning. And Lord, we turn now to intercede for 
uh, Miss Deborah, sending love to her this morning. She's experiencing pain in her bodies today, Lord, that you may be with her, that you may deliver her, that you may encourage her in the spirit. As she listens and watches the service, Lord, that your spirit be with her, that she may be blessed by what she hears today and what she repeats herself. We pray for Miss Dolores and our brother Darrell with their legs, Lord, pain that they may be experiencing, that you be with them this morning and here, that you strengthen them, Lord, that you may heal them, provide them comfort and relief from the pains that they experience. Lord, we pray for Brother Harvey. It's good to hear from him this morning. Thank you for him recovering. His voice sounds better. His speech sounds more normal, sounds more like Harvey. We pray, Lord, that you continue to be with him. Your grace may be with him as he watches us this morning also. Continue to bless him as he rehabs, that he gets to a full recovery, Lord, sooner rather than later. We know he wished to be with us this morning. We thank you that he's able to watch us this morning, Lord, and that he knows that we love him, that we continue to pray for him and uplift him. Continue to have your way in his life, Lord. We pray for Emily as she's traveling to Jacksonville, Lord, that you be with her on the road. Safe travels to her as she goes to move down closer to her family. And that your grace may be with her also, Lord. We love our sister in the Lord. Just be with her this morning, Lord. Lord, we also pray for uh, our fellow men, fellow pastors who are laboring in the gospel. Lord, First, Second Timothy 4 and 2 tells us to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with great patience and instruction. Lord, I pray that the men leading your churches, including myself, follow this command from the Lord. Brother Steve Mays, Gobbler J, Josephus, Sylvester, Josh, Cody, Mark, James, Patterson, Carlton, Bob, Phil, Anthony, all the faithful brothers, Lord, that we are faithful to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with all patience and instruction. May we preach the scriptures. May we stick to the word, stick to your truth, Lord. May we shepherd our flock well by the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray this morning as I preach this text, which is often overlooked in the book of Ephesians, that the spirit may be with me. Fill me with your spirit, Lord, to preach this text well. As we looked at the mystery unveiled to the apostle Paul concerning the church, the revelation of the church. And Lord, send your spirit to illuminate the truths that we will hear this morning. Bless us, Lord, 
as we spend time hearing from you, from your most holy word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. We're in Ephesians, the third chapter, verses 1 through 13. Now, these verses I'm going to split into two different sermons. So part one will be today and part two will be uh, next week. But this is the revelation of the church. The revelation of the church. And this is sort of a transition from the second chapter, but then again, it's not a transition. We'll explain uh, why. But these are the words of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Our focus this morning is going to be verses 1 through 7. So that's what we're going to read this morning. Paul begins, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of or for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard the dispensation, dispensation, you can substitute the word stewardship or administration, the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. I think most of your Bibles, you will see a colon after that word. And what is the mystery? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. That's where we're going to stop this morning. We'll deal with verses 8 through 13 next week. So this is the mystery revealed. The revelation of the church. This is the mystery revealed. One of my favorite cartoons growing up was Scooby-Doo. That was one of my favorite cartoons growing up. And you know, Scooby-Doo, they had the mystery machine. Remember that van that they had? I didn't realize when I was growing up that they were a bunch of hippies. Uh, but Scooby-Doo had the mystery machine. You know, they, they, they were just problem-solving, like, college-age students. And they always, you know, had clues, you know, to find out who did what, who committed a murder, or who robbed somebody, where, whatever the case may be. And then when they finally, you know, got to the end, the villain always was almost wearing a mask 
and they will pull the mask off and the mystery of whoever did it will be revealed. Our world is obsessed with like mystery. You know, things hidden now being revealed. A lot of shows deal with mystery. It was a popular show that came on uh, that Robert Stack used to host called Unsolved Mysteries. He hosted that show for a lot of years, maybe like 30 or so years. I remember watching Unsolved Mysteries. He thought about various mysteries like the disappearance of Amelia Earhart or, you know, some other type of unsolved mysteries that, you know, things that happened that no one knew what the outcome was. It was a very popular show on television. You can actually watch old episodes of it because some of those mysteries have still not been solved. And there are a lot of times that we see mysteries, we hear about mysteries, and we begin to realize, hey, those people never figured out those things. Do you all remember after September 11th, those who are uh, old enough to remember after the September 11th attacks, they had the whole anthrax thing where people were mailing anthrax lace envelopes to different people's houses and stuff and everything. Do you know that until this day, what, 20 something years later, they never found out or never revealed to us who was behind those anthrax envelopes that were being mailed? Never found out. Some people have mysteries concerning the assassination of John F. Kennedy or the disappearance of uh, John Hoffa, the famous uh, mafia boss. No one knows where he is buried. That's been a, a mystery for what, almost 50 years or so. No one knows where Hoffa is buried. There are a lot of mysteries out there in our society and culture that people are um, intrigued by. Mysteries of ancient civilizations, how different civilizations lived. There are a lot of mysteries concerning them, and those mysteries in the world turn into conspiracy theories. <laughs> you know, once we can't solve things, we have to make up conspiracies about them. There's a lot of mystery in our world. But Paul here deals with a very important mystery that is more important than all these mysteries that the world has to throw at us. And this is the mystery of the church and who the church comprises of. So Paul talks about a mystery that is revealed, and he jumps down to it again at verse 6, that Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus as the Jews are. That is the mystery that was revealed to Paul. So we're just going to look at this verse by verse, principle by principle, and see what this mystery revealed is and how Paul gets to it. So looking at the first verse here, Paul says, for this reason, and for this reason refers back to the second chapter. And what was that second chapter dealing with? He mainly focused on the oneness of Gentiles with Jews. He says in verse 19 of chapter 2, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And he continues in verse 21, In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in which you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So 
Paul was saying that Jews and Gentiles are the same. And so guess what? For this reason, that's how chapter 3 begins. For that reason, that Jews and Gentiles are the same in Christ, he became a what? Prisoner. I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. It was because of what he revealed about the church. Because he preached about the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. Because he preached the gospel to the Gentiles. He was put in prison. Now when did this happen? I want you all to see this. Turn to Acts, the book of Acts. This is Paul's missionary journey. When he was in Jerusalem, when he was forbidden not to go to Jerusalem. Let's turn to Acts, the 21st chapter. Get a little background here. This will... This will help us when we look at the context of everything that we're going to hear today. As we know this last night and uh, re-familiarizing myself with this text. The context was Paul was going to Jerusalem and he was forewarned to not go because he wasn't going to be greeted well there. Paul had just in Acts 20 talked to the Ephesian elders and, and, and bid them farewell. And then now he's on his way to Jerusalem. So Acts 21. It says here in verse 4, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul, not to go on to Jerusalem. Okay? So he told Paul not to go. The Ephesians were telling him not to go to Jerusalem. Okay? But he went in the way. They went on the voyage to Tyre. Just kind of skipping through here. And then they finally made it to Jerusalem. Verse 15. These days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. They came to Jerusalem. The brothers had received them gladly. He says, verse 18, on the following day, Paul went with us. And this is Luke writing, by the way. He's saying with us. Luke was with them. Wrote, Luke wrote the book of Acts. And went with us uh, to James. And all the elders were present. James, this is the brother of the Lord Jesus, the same James who wrote the book of James in the New Testament. He was one of the leaders of the early church. It says, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God has done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And he said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law and they have been told about you and teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs what then is to be done they will certainly hear that you have come do therefore what they tell what we tell you we have four men who are under a vow take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that we may they may shave their heads. 
Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Paul took them in the next day. He purified himself along with them and went into the temple and given notice when the days of purification should be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. And this is where we get down to the crux of everything. When the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, Paul, in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on Paul. So a riot broke out. Okay, that's what happened. A riot broke out. They laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Greeks were the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So they were upset because Paul was telling these Gentiles that they didn't have to observe the law. They didn't have to get circumcised. And they didn't have to go to the temple to worship God. Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, this wasn't true. So they were laying a false allegation against Paul. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, so this was a serious, angry mob. They were dragging Paul seeking to kill him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So Jerusalem was a big riot in Jerusalem. A lot of, lot of ruckus going around about this Paul. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So this is when Paul was imprisoned. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another, as always is the case. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barrack. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. So the crowd was so violent, pressing in that the soldiers had to physically get him out of there. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! And then Paul spoke to the people. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. 
And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So basically, he gave his testimony saying that he was a persecutor in the way and on his way to Damascus, the Lord had appeared to him. So he gave that testimony. Then he talked about how Ananias had given him his sight. And then later on in verse 17 of chapter 22, he says, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and go out to Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me, about Christ. This is Christ speaking to him. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So this is when Paul was commissioned to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He heard this from the Lord himself. But because he went to the Gentiles, guess what? The Jews did not like it. And so they had him put in prison. So looking back at our text this morning, when Paul says he is a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, that's what he meant. Paul was under house arrest. He was in Roman imprisonment. During the day, he was free to move around the house under the supervision of soldiers. But every night, he was chained to a soldier to make sure he did not escape before his trial before Caesar because Paul was going to have to stand before Caesar. If you continue to read through uh, uh, verse 20, chapters 22 and 23, you will see where Paul eventually appeared before Caesar to state his case as to why he should not have been in prison. But Paul was on house arrest. But yet he saw himself, although he was a prisoner of the state, he was a prisoner of Caesar. He saw himself rather as a prisoner of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. He knew that Jesus was Lord of his life, not the Roman government. Because if the Roman government was his Lord, he would have said, I, Paul, a prisoner of Caesar. But rather, Paul was saying he was a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is his Lord. Jesus is his God. He is the Lord of his life, not Caesar, not the Roman government. So if he was to be a prisoner, he was to be Jesus' prisoner. He's a prisoner for the cause of the gospel. It is better to be a prisoner for the cause of the gospel than to be a prisoner for violating the laws of the state. It is better to be a prisoner because you were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have in some cities pro-life advocates that are, uh, are um, advocating for the unborn in front of abortion clinics that get arrested for proclaiming the gospel. They're not blocking anyone from going in. They're just out proclaiming the gospel and yet they get arrested for that. Because they're proclaiming Christ. They're prisoners of Christ. Paul suffered as a prisoner 
because of his love toward Jesus and his church. That's why he was in prison. It wasn't because he sinned. Paul did not commit a sin by taking the gospel to the Gentiles. He was commissioned by God to do that. If people want to cause us to suffer because of our love for Christ and his church, then so be it. That's a good reason to suffer. That is a good reason to even be imprisoned. He says he's imprisoned for the Gentiles, for you Gentiles. Again, the entire reason he was under arrest and awaiting trial was because he brought the gospel ministry to the Gentiles, his missionary efforts on behalf of the Gentiles. Paul is not serving himself for his own benefit. He is serving the church for their benefit. And this is the heart and motivation of a true apostle, which Paul was. Paul wasn't serving his own self-interest just as these false, fake apostles do, do in our day. These so-called apostles at these, these churches. They're all about promoting themselves and they're all about people promoting them. And I'm going to tell you all something, just in case you didn't know, these people are notoriously insecure. All these so-called bishops, all these so-called apostles, they are very insecure people. If people don't praise them enough, their ego goes down. And they get up in church and they guilt trip. Now you should honor your pastors. You honor those who have a ruling authority over you in the Lord. You do do that. But these people take it to the next level. They always want praise. They always want you to praise them. They always want you to address them by their title. Bishop. Apostle. Why? Because they're notoriously insecure. They're all about self-interest. If Bishop is not on my driver's license, my first name is not Bishop. But you know, people do that. They're just, hey, hey uh, praise the Lord, Bishop. Praise the Lord, Apostle. Apostle so-and-so. Why? Because they are interested in themselves. They're not like the Apostle Paul. Paul is not serving himself for his own benefit. He says, I am a prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles. This is the heart of a true apostle. They're serving the church for their benefit. These fake apostles and fake bishops don't serve for the benefit of their church. They serve for their own benefit. They do. I know a lot of them, and they do. They are only concerned about themselves. They're only concerned about promoting themselves. They're all concerned about people promoting them, people praising them, people worshiping them, people falling at their feet, people having their names coming out of their mouth all the time, just frolicking over, over them. Self-serving, that's what they are. But Paul here is showing the heart of an apostle. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the Gentiles. 
on behalf of the Gentiles. Paul suffered for the very truth that he would explain to the Ephesians. And he didn't back down one bit from doing it. The last thing Paul wanted was for people to feel sorry for him because he was in prison. He did not want that. He wanted the readers of his letter. I mean, Paul wrote this, this letter to the Ephesians from prison while he was in this imprisonment. He wrote it to them. He wanted his readers to realize it was a benefit for them that he was a prisoner. It was for their benefit. As we suffer, as believers, we must think about Jesus' suffering so we don't waste ours. Paul thought about the suffering of his Savior. He didn't waste his suffering. You know how we can waste our suffering by, by only thinking about us? Sometimes we become, we become so self-absorbed in our suffering. We only think about ourselves. We don't think on others. We don't think about praying for others when we're suffering. We don't think mostly about our Savior who suffered the most suffered more than we ever will more than we ever have or more than we ever will but Paul did Paul suffered and we must understand Jesus suffered greatly for our sins he was afflicted by us and for us he was afflicted by us because it was our sins who put Christ on the cross. He was afflicted for us because he died as our substitute. Our sin killed Christ. Our sin killed Christ. But his death brought us life. His affliction was for our salvation. But the primary purpose of Christ's suffering was to glorify God the Father by revealing the true justice and mercy of the cross. That's what it did. It revealed the true justice of God and the true mercy of God. And if we're in Christ, we can endure affliction as he did to his glory. And that's what Paul did. As a prisoner for the Gentiles, guess what? He endured to the glory of God, his suffering. And he did it to the benefit of someone else and not himself. So he continues. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard the dispensation, remember I said dispensation means stewardship or administration of the grace of God which was given to me for you how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery Paul knew that his particular calling to the Gentiles was well known among Gentile Christians he knew this because word had spread about it he says you have heard of the dispensation again the stewardship of the grace of God which was given to me for you Paul was entrusted with the ministry to the Gentiles. We read that in Acts. We just read that in Acts 22. When Christ 
when Christ called Paul, he told him, don't go to the Jews, don't, don't go to Jerusalem, because they are not going to hear him, but rather go far away to who? The Gentiles. Paul was entrusted with the grace of God. It was given to him. It was given to him. It was entrusted to Paul the purpose of preaching the gospel among the Gentiles. God had given them, given him this task. Paul had stewardship of the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles. That was his calling in the Lord. So that's what he means by that. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God. He says how that by revelation. So Paul was letting him know he, he didn't make this up. He didn't make this up. It wasn't his invention. We read God gave him the revelation. And he's only the messenger of it. He's only the messenger of this truth. He didn't make this truth up. If it was made up, it wouldn't be truth. This call came from God. This stewardship call came from the Lord. And it cost Paul a lot to hold on to that mystery. If you look at Galatians 1, we talked about this when I preached through Galatians. Galatians 1 and 12 and 15 through 16, Paul says this. Man, I love this. I just looked at verse 11. <laughs> Galatians 1, 11. Begin at verse 11. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not whose gospel? Man's gospel. Paul didn't make this gospel to the Gentiles up. But what does he say? Verse 12. For I did not receive it from any man. Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ revealed this gospel to Paul to give to the Gentiles. He didn't make this stuff up. That's why he says in, 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 in our passage in Ephesians, it was given to him. He didn't make this up. Continue looking at Galatians 1 if you look at verses 15 and 16. But when he who has set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, he's speaking of Christ, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. So Christ revealed this to him that he might preach him among the Gentiles so Paul did not make this up so when he says here in Ephesians you have heard of dispensation the stewardship of the grace of God which was given to me how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery 
The revelation was granted to Paul on the Damascus Road. It's amazing that God would give Paul, who as he called himself, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, to be the main minister of the mystery. Paul, the one who tried to destroy the church, was the one God commissioned to bring Jews and Gentiles together. That is amazing. That is amazing grace. That is amazing mercy. God calls us despite ourselves, despite our human limitations. Guess what? God still calls us. No one is perfectly qualified to do gospel ministry. It is God who qualifies us, not ourselves. God qualified Paul despite the fact that he was a Jew, despite the fact that he was a Pharisee, and taught by the greatest of Pharisees, Gamaliel, and despite the fact that he was a persecutor of the church, God sent him to bring the Gentiles into his fold. Only God can do something like that. Only God will do something like that. And so he says here, he continues. He made known to me the mystery. So the principle that Paul is going to describe is a mystery, yet it is known. When we speak about mystery in scripture, that's what we are thinking about. Now, in English, John Stott, the theologian, says here, in English, a mystery is something dark, obscure, secret, and puzzling. What is mysterious is inexplicable. That means not able to be explained, even incomprehensible. The Greek word mysterion is different. However, although still a secret, it is no longer closely guarded but open. More simply, mysterion is a truth hitherto hidden from human knowledge or understanding, but now disclosed by the revelation of God. So when the Bible speaks of mystery, it speaks of something that was previously unknown, but has now been revealed. That's what mystery means in Scripture. It's not something that remains mysterious. Like I talked about some of the mysteries that's never been found out. In biblical terms, that's not a mystery. In biblical terms, a mystery is something that is previously hidden, but has now been revealed. So God made known to Paul something that was previously unknown, but is now known. But Paul did not hesitate to make known that this mystery was given to him by revelation. It wasn't given to him by his own thinking. This mystery to the Gentiles was revealed to him by revelation. It's not something that Paul studied or, or figured out on his own. And because of this, it wasn't corrupted or confused. It came from God because anything that comes from God is not corrupted and is not confused at all. It's always clear. Now, what God did is God used Paul to declare specifically 
how Jews and Gentiles would be joined together into one body. And that's what we see in the book of Ephesians. He says it was not made known to the sons of men as now it has been revealed. In the Old Testament, the salvation of the Gentiles in the Messiah is prophesied. Okay, it's prophesied in the Old Testament. But the coming together of Jews and Gentiles in the church is not spoken of in the Old Testament. Okay, but the salvation of the Gentiles in the Messiah is prophesied. But Jews and Gentiles being one in the church is never spoken of in the Old Testament. But now it has been revealed. And what is the mystery? See, it's in verse 6. What does he say it is? That Jews, Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through what? The gospel. The gospel is the means in which this all happens. Of which I became a minister. So this is the mystery. This is the mystery that we're talking about. This is the revelation of the church that we're talking about this morning. What is the revelation that the church contains both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews? That means that ethnicity does not matter. All who believe in Christ will be saved regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their melanin count and their skin. It does not matter. So we're going to look at three things in this in verse six. He lists three, three things that will happen. That the Gentiles should be number one, fellow heirs. Of the same body and partakers. Fellow heirs means equal share, equal inheritance. The same body means that there are no second class citizens in the body of Christ. And the partakers of the promise means that all are guaranteed, all the promises are guaranteed by the faithful God. And it is all centered, he says, in Christ Jesus. All of this is centered in Christ. What's centered in Christ? That Gentiles are fellow heirs, that we are the same body, and then we are partakers of God's promise, all centered in Christ Jesus. It is accomplished through the gospel. So the Gentiles are what? Fellow heirs of the same body. Fellow partakers in Christ through the gospel. This signifies our new life in Christ. This signifies our identity as believers. We've been talking about identity a whole lot in this book. Our identity in Christ is that of fellow heirs. We are heirs with our uh, other believers throughout the world. We're fellow heirs. We are of the same body. Christians everywhere belong to the same body. You have some denominations that are so insulated that they feel that they're the only Christians that exist. 
We were part of one at one time. That they thought they were the only true believers. All Christians, all those who call on the name of the Lord. The true Jesus, the true God as he's revealed himself in scripture. All are of the same body. We're all partakers of the promise. And that promise is guaranteed. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 1 and 14. That we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance. We all have that same guarantee. We're all sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We're all kept by the power of God until the end. We're all part of God's family. We're all God's children by grace through faith. We all have the same destination. Regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our nationality, regardless of all those things, guess what? We are one. We are all partakers. We're all guaranteed the same inheritance. That is our identity. These earthly identities that people cling to are fleeting. They fail. Why do you think <laughs> that they're over the numbers still counting and growing? These people who are rebelling against God concerning human uh, sexuality and quote gender identity that the number of so-called genders is over 120 because everyone is searching for what an identity the only two male and female created he them but when you keep adding to that is why people are searching for identity Those things don't matter. They're fleeting. They're, they're, they're of this world. They're going to pass away. People uh, flout their mental health diagnosis as a, as a point of identity. They want you to know that they have ADD or that they have depression or that they have anxiety or, or PTSD. And they, they, they trumpet it like it's, it's, it's a badge of honor. Why? Because of identity. Their identity is in their diagnosis or in the type of medicines they take. But for Christians, our identity is in Christ. Paul says this, partakers of his promise in Christ. It is centered in Christ, our identity as believers. And for the Gentiles, our identity is Gentiles. We're fellow heirs. We have the same body and we're partakers of his promise in Christ Jesus. That is where it matters the most, people. No matter anywhere else. No matter anywhere else. There's no need of looking anywhere else other than to Christ. This is where our new life is centered. So again, the mystery is that believing 
Jews and believing Christians are joined together into one body of Christ. We're joined into one church, Big C Church. And we're no longer separated before God as such. In our culture, we've allowed the, the secularists to even divide the church. You have the black church. You have white evangelicals. There's no such thing as the black church. There's no such thing as a white evangelical. Either you're evangelical or you're not. Evangelical is a person who adheres basically to biblical doctrine. That's what it means to be an evangelical. But we've allowed the culture to put that into a voting group. Evangelicals vote this way or even Evangelicals think this way about it. You have all these. Think about how, and I talk about this all the time, uh, how bifurcated. Bifurcate means to just separate down, just break down more and more and more and more and more. That's what it means to bifurcate something. How bifurcated our society is. You have all these different categories. Look at all these polls and surveys. They've, they've broken people down to so many different groups. Just look at surveys that come on. That flash across television screen or studies. They've had, had us broken down so many. You got subcategories under categories. We've allowed the culture to divide the church over nonsense. The true church, not talking about people who are cultural Christians or who profess Christianity but are not true believers. We've allowed the culture to separate us into so many different identity groups because that's what it is, is identity idolatry. Yeah, conservative Christian versus liberal Christian. Moderate Christian, progressive Christian. Either you are a Christian, a Christ follower, a true Christ follower, or you are not. There's no such thing as a progressive Christian. I can just tell you that now because of what they believe. Progressive Christians believe that it's okay to kill babies in the womb. They believe that it's okay for children to have their bodies mutilated and chemically castrated uh, through drugs because they think that they're trapped in the wrong body. They have prayer services for trees and animals inside of their churches. They fly the rainbow flag inside their church. They fly the BLM flag inside their church. That's what progressive Christianity is, which is not Christianity. They believe in a false gospel. They believe in a false Jesus. They don't worship the one true God. But yet they're labeled progressive Christian as if there's a different kind. But when you lose your identity in Christ, you're given over to all these other things of the culture. You give in to the categories that the world tries to pigeonhole you into. But that is not the true church. We are not given over to what the culture says we are and who the culture says we are and how the culture says we are to worship. And how we ought to think about God. And how we ought to think of other people. Fellow image bearers. But when you 
give in to the identities of this culture. You got to take it whole hog. You can't take parts of it and try to redeem it and make it good. It just does not work that way. Once you step your foot into those waters, you might as well jump in. Because we've allowed the culture to filter into the church. When they say the church has become like the world, that is one of the ways it has. Well, we have given in to these worldly ideologies and let them filter into the house of God. Instead of looking at what Paul tells us. That we are fellow heirs. That we are of the same body. And we are partakers of the promise in Christ. Gentiles are now full partakers of the promise. We have the privilege, all the privileges. We are accepted in the beloved, as Paul said in Ephesians 1 and 6. That is a great privilege. We are accepted in Christ. That is a great promise that we have. We are no less accepted in Christ than any Jewish Christians are. And they're no less accepted in Christ than we are. I am no less accepted in Christ than a brother or a sister from Europe or from Canada or from South America. And they are no less accepted in Christ than I am. That is the great privilege that we have as believers. We have all the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. As I hear, used to hear old preachers say, there are no big eyes and little U's in the church. How is this all accomplished? Through the gospel. Through the gospel. None of this could happen except through the gospel. It is only the gospel that brings us together only through the preaching of the true gospel can this reality take place but again you got a lot of churches that don't preach the true gospel <laughs> this whole kumbaya so called gospel that people have is not a true gospel at all it is false In the gospel, all men have equal standing before Jesus. All men, all women. Men mean a general term. The power of the gospel brings ethnicities together. Man-made means don't do it. Only, only through the gospel can ethnicities be brought together. I, th I talked about this before. I think last week we had all these re racial reconciliation conferences going on, uh, especially back in 2017, 2018. All these um, racial reconciliation, having joint church services and all this stuff, you know, predominantly black churches, predominantly white churches, you know, getting together, having joint services to show 
Uh, you had uh, predominantly white churches with uh, a, a black inviting a black preacher to come preach at their church. You know, they do that one time, maybe every few years when they feel guilty because they've been listening to the culture. You need to let black people come preach at your church. Hear the gospel from a black perspective. Let me tell y'all something. There's no black perspective of the gospel. There's no white perspective of the gospel. There's no Asian perspective of the gospel. There's no European perspective of the gospel. There's only one gospel from God's perspective, and that is what matters. There's no black gospel experience or white gospel experience. That does not exist. That is a lie of the world. And the church has let that filter into it. You have black people. I don't like that church because they don't sing my type of music. That's a sin. That is sinful thinking. They don't sing my kind of music. They don't sing music that moves me like. And I'm gonna tell you now. I'm just being honest. A lot of a lot of black gospel music is trash. It's not gospel. And a lot of contemporary Christian music that some of the predominantly white churches sing is trash. A lot of it is trash. It's not sound. It's not true gospel music. But yet you have people saying they won't go to a church because they don't sing my type of music. That is not the gospel. That is man made. The true gospel unites people. It brings them under the same banner that what? We are one church with one body. We don't have to worship at the same church to be one body. And you notice something? This is another inconvenient truth. It is always the, predominant, the, the predominantly white churches that are called to diversify, not the predominantly black churches. It's always the predominantly white churches that are called to be more diverse. They won't go over there to West Anderson and tell those churches over there that they need to be more diverse, that they need to attract more white Christians over there. They're not going to tell them that. I remember talking to uh, Brother Ryan Limbaugh when he was pastor down there at our Redeemer in Oxford. We had a good conversation about this. Uh, when he was pastor, we was riding our bikes on the trail, and he was talking to me about it. I said, Ryan, I said, don't fall under that pressure, brother. I said, let God grow your church. Let God build your church. Let God bring people to your church. Don't try to deliberately reach out to certain neighborhoods or certain communities. D don't do it. You just preach the gospel and let God bring people to your church. I told Bob the same thing at ABC. Those brothers appreciated me for that. I told Carlton the same thing because that, that's not, that's, that's, that's patronizing. That's not how you do it. You let God grow your church. You let God bring those people to your church. Christ builds his church. Don't, don't give in to this, this cultural pressure to be a, quote, diverse church. Don't do it. You preach the gospel. If it's God's will that you have more uh, members with more melanin in their skin, then so be it. But if not, so be it. But why is it always the predominantly white churches who are pressured to do that? Because of what the culture is telling them, that white people are bad, that white people are the, 
the true racists, that white people are the oppressors. That's what the culture is saying. And you got these weak white pastors bound the knee to that nonsense. They put black elders. I got a friend of mine who's an elder at a Presbyterian church up in Huntsville because he couldn't be an elder at, at, at one, of the, uh, one of our sister churches. He, he's, 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 he was accepted as elder at a church up in Huntsville as a, as, as a, you know, as a black elder up there. I'm like, man, that's not the way you do it. But that's what some people look for. The gospel is greater. It is not man-made. You can't do it by man's means because it will be artificial. It won't be organic. It doesn't, no, in other words, it won't happen naturally. This gospel is the way in which it is done. Through the gospel, the power of the gospel brings people together. It is not man-made because, again, anything that's done of man is always going to be chaotic. It's going to cause chaos. It's never going to last. It's going to be temporary. It's going to be temporary. Paul recognizes that he is a servant and that this servitude is a gift from God. He says, of which I became a minister, minister meaning servant, according to to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul recognized that he is a servant and that this servitude is a gift from God. And it was given to him through the work of his power, the power of God, not Paul's power. God gives us the power to do the same thing. We're a servant. We're servants of the gospel. We're to be good stewards of it. Now, this, this passage that we just looked at has great relevance for us today. We are stewards of the grace of God just as Paul is. We can demonstrate to a world that is caught up in animosity between races, so to speak, and narcissistic self-involvement, people who are all about worshiping themselves and loving themselves, we as Christians can demonstrate that Christ has not only saved us from our sins, but he brought us together to become a whole new humanity. To come into oneness with each other through Christ. In Christ, we belong to one another. And we can glory in what each of us can add to the body of Christ. And I always say this, my primary concern is for the body of Christ. My primary concern is not for unbelievers. My concern for them is that they be saved. Yes. But my primary concern, my priority is the saints, believers. That should be all of our first and primary concern, the body of Christ. Why? Because we're fellow heirs. We are the same body and we are partakers of the promises in Christ. That's our priority, the body of Christ, first and foremost. When we're in Christ, we see that more and more. This is the plan of God, and it can only be achieved in him.
We can't be one with unbelievers. Light can't have fellowship with darkness. Because the Bible says, how can two walk except they what? Agree. I can be friends with unbelievers, yes. I can. I can be friends with them. I work with some. But we can't be in fellowship with each other because we don't have anything in common beyond our flesh. Beyond the fact that we're image bearers. We don't have the same inheritance. We're not fellow heirs. We're not in the same body. We minister the gospel to them that they may become part of the same body. But as believers, God brought us together to become a one humanity in him. Oneness with each other and oneness in Christ. That is the ultimate goal. And that is what we should strive for just as Paul did. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you the, uh, for the faithfulness of the Apostle Paul in fulfilling the call of ministry to the Gentiles. We thank you for him obeying you in, in doing that, Lord, so that we can celebrate today because we are one in Christ with our Jewish brothers and sisters who believe in you also. We thank you, Lord, that we are fellow heirs, we are the same body, and we are partakers of your promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as I said in the end, we are stewards of your grace. We have to demonstrate to a lost world that's caught up in all these different divisions, a greater vision that you have to unite all people together in Christ through salvation. And Lord, help us to continue to do this, to be good stewards of the gospel that has been entrusted to us. And Lord, I pray for unbelievers who hear this, that they know that they're not one with us who are believers until they come to faith in Christ, that they are outside of the body right now, but they can come in if they repent and believe the gospel, trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, use this message to encourage your people to convict sinners, and to bring you glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.